what HICPAC and CDC are doing right now, they are wanting to adopt that same flexible approach with the crisis and contingency standards that they took in COVID for all of infection control. This guidance will impact so many people and they're keeping the draft behind closed doors. death panel to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod you'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes now i know that we announced last week that we were taking a week off from releasing new recordings so that we could spend the week working on research and development for the fall and getting some really great episodes together for you all but as is habit here at Death Panel, we try to take off and then, you know, we release an episode anyways. <laughs> so again, if you'd like to support our work and the over 100 deeply researched hour plus long episodes that we put out a year, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am joined by a fantastic guest who is here to talk about why the CDC is trying to weaken infection control guidance in healthcare settings and the organizing that is happening against it. My guest today is Jane Thomason. Jane is the lead industrial hygienist for National Nurses United, known as NNU, which has been leading a fight to resist this and who needs your help urging the CDC to fully recognize aerosol transmission and help keep everyone who uses healthcare facilities from workers to patients safe from respiratory infections. Jane, welcome to the Death Panel, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So just to start us off, can you start us at the beginning here? Some people may have seen this campaign mentioned or that there's an upcoming meeting or that there's proposed changes to infection control guidelines. But just so everyone is on the same page and folks listening have sort of context for what's going on, you know, what is happening right now and what is NNU asking folks to do? Okay, so... This is a little bit wonky of a process, but the <laughs> CDC the CDC has an advisory committee called the Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee. It's a mouthful, so we all just know it as HICPAC, H-I-C-P-A-C, um, HICPAC. And so HICPAC has written over the last several decades a number of guidance documents that the CDC relies on to tell healthcare facilities how they should protect patients and workers from infectious diseases. We're talking about tuberculosis, MRSA, influenza, measles, Ebola, COVID, everything. Mm -hmm. um, the last time that HICPAC updated this guidance was in 2007. So it's past time that we do another update. There's been a lot <laughs> of scientific research over the last few decades. Um, and that's what they're doing now is they're updating that foundational guidance Many of us call it the Bible of infection control for healthcare mm. settings. Um, so that gives you kind of a sense of like, this is what everyone goes to. Regulatory agencies incorporate it by reference. So it it has a pretty broad ranging impact, this guidance. Mm -hmm. So HICPAC is in the process of updating this guidance. 
and they're trying to make it more user-friendly. That's what they're saying. It's about 200 pages right now. They want to get it down to 10 to 15. Okay. The, problem, <laughs> the problem is that this process has been completely behind closed doors. They're going out of their way, really, to make it inaccessible to the public. HICPAC is pretty much exclusively infectious disease clinicians and hospital industry, healthcare industry representatives. So those are the people who are doing this. They're writing it. They're making decisions. They're doing research. They're deciding what, what needs to be done around infection control in nursing homes and hospitals and clinics across the country. So I've been following this process for the last, actually it's been over a year now. And we finally have enough information that's been made public that we're very concerned about what they are planning to do in these in these updates. And why we're talking about this right now, why we're taking action right now, is that there's a vote coming up at a meeting that's happening this next Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, where HICPAC will be voting officially on sending their guidance updates to the CDC to uh, finalize the process. So that's why we're intervening now is because we've gotten information that they're headed in the wrong direction, that they're going to weaken protections for patients and healthcare workers. And we have this meeting coming up uh, where they're going to make a vote. Now, I went through that 200 plus page document. Um, Good for you. Recently. Uh, you know, we're thorough here at Death Panel. And the thought of reducing that to 10 to 15 pages after having spent hours going through it with a fine tooth comb is frankly terrifying. There is so much detail in the recommendations. And a lot of these recommendations were, you know, changed and updated in 2007 in response to the 2003 SARS outbreak. And what's really, I think, difficult and frustrating is to imagine both the kind of impact that this could have immediately to care, but also just the space and duration between these updates and the kind of information that's going to get lost in the simplification of this document into something shorter and more quote-unquote user-friendly. Like, I, I understand that impulse, but it is very worrying, especially considering a lot of the other recent changes we've seen or even just changes we've seen to COVID guidelines or frameworks in the last, you know, two, two and a half years. So, but also if this guideline gets rolled back, it could be in place for quite a while. And now your expertise specifically is in industrial hygiene, which gives you very special insight into how workplaces become important vectors of the spread of diseases, especially in a respiratory pandemic like COVID, where you have folks who are coming to the hospital, they're coming maybe with um, relatives or caregivers who may not have symptoms, but could be asymptomatic. You know, you're, you're really dealing with like a very complex infection environment. And if you look at the 2007 guidelines, you know, it appears that if you're following those guidelines, then out of an abundance of precaution, the thing to do is to have mask mandates in healthcare and actually sort of holding up the rollback of mask mandates that we've seen. I think Los Angeles County ended mask mandates in healthcare settings um, this week even you know, to hold that up against the current guidelines, it, you know, makes sense why there is a concerted effort by the kind of constituencies that you mentioned being really key to this, sort of pushing it away from that standard. But this is also potentially, you know, an opportunity to kind of recognize some of the disease pathways and ways that COVID is transmitted, but also the ways that COVID impacts work, right? And so I think a really important 
part of the campaign that NNU is doing that I'd love for us to talk about for a second is that, you know, your background is all about identifying and mitigating the things at work that can make people sick. And you would think that it would be an obvious point to see sort of what COVID has done to the U.S. quote unquote healthcare system in the last three years and say, okay, this infection guidance needs to reflect the fact that COVID is transmitted through aerosols, through the air, that it is a, you know, airborne virus. But NNU is very concerned that we're actually not going to see that acknowledgement reproduced in these new guidelines as well. Yeah. So I think one of the things that became clear when the working group did a presentation at the June 2023 HICPAC meeting, that's a public meeting, is that they are planning on updating the scientific paradigm on infectious disease transmission by name only, but that Mm. they're still continuing this like failure to actually comprehend and grapple with all of the research on aerosol transmission of infectious diseases, just like you said. Like we have, it it was before COVID, we have decades of research Mm -hmm. on this topic and COVID only drove home, we shouldn't have had to live through the mortality and morbidity that we have and that we continue to live with around the world, but especially in the United States. We had the information we needed before the pandemic started. Um, It's just that the CDC caved to industry pressure to weaken their guidance. The CDC actually, if you look back and think back to January through March of 2020, The CDC actually started with a precautionary approach. They started by saying you need at least an N95 respirator if you're a healthcare worker caring for a patient who might have COVID. And that patient needs to be in an airborne infection isolation room, which is a room that has um, specialized ventilation set up so that there's no chance for airborne virus to transmit through the facility outside of that patient's room. That's what the CDC started with. And then Mm -hmm. they weakened it after the hospital industry said, hey, we need you to give us cover because we're not going to do that. Right. Um, What is it like in practice right now for nurses and for healthcare workers? You know, what kind of protections do they actually have at the moment? I think things are are in a really bad situation for a lot of healthcare workers. And that is squarely on the shoulders of the healthcare industry, of, of the employers, You know, I think everyone's aware of the staffing crisis in healthcare, that there are many nurses and other healthcare workers who are leaving the bedside or leaving the profession entirely. And that's happening because healthcare employers have not protected them because they have intentionally short-staffed units. And that has led to really dangerous working conditions for patients and for healthcare workers. There was this complete abandonment of healthcare workers, right? We saw employers at the beginning of the pandemic literally walk, we saw managers walk walk through units, gathering up all of the PPE and locking it away and telling nurses that they weren't allowed to access it, even when they had known COVID positive patients that they were caring for, right? Just that whole abandonment and disregard for nurses' safety as they were on the front lines of this crisis um, and the, the moral distress that comes from that and that comes from seeing so much death and so much sickness without any of those supports from your employer um, has led to just these astronomical rates of moral distress um, and just this harm to healthcare workers across the country. And so it's, it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of them say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. And on top of all of that, as if that wasn't enough, we're seeing many employers continue to 
uh, keep these crisis standards in place. So keep these lean staffing levels mm. uh, in place. Uh, keep lean resourcing plans in place so that there's like not always supplies that you need because the employer is trying to save a dollar on not having enough inventory, right? Mm. Things like that are happening. Um, and that's just causing this huge crisis for healthcare workers. Yeah, I mean, it's probably really difficult to sum up kind of the scale of frustration and misery that folks are experiencing right now. We have a lot of listeners who are healthcare workers. We hear from folks all the time, you know, stories that I wish I could share on air, but, you know, it's off the record on background. And there are so many moments where patients have been put in really, really, really dangerous situations in the last three years directly as a result of the organized abandonment that, you know, COVID kind of initiated, but that it hasn't necessarily been justified. Like, as you're saying, these kinds of crisis framings of saying, okay, well, there's a supply chain issue and we can't get um, 500 bags of saline anymore. You know, the, the kind of shift during COVID has been very much like what happens after a big natural disaster. If a big concentration of medical storage or medical supplies manufacturers are hit by a hurricane, like for example, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico caused devastation in Puerto Rico and then caused resulting shortages in medical supplies and medications as a result of the way that the kind of extractive medical industries exist and concentrate a lot of storage facilities in Puerto Rico that then lost power, right? So you have all these kinds of moments where, let's say, in response to a crisis, decisions are made and working conditions are shifted. Maybe staffing ratios are changed. Maybe the kind of supplies that you use are changed. But what you're saying and what I hear from so many people is that the crisis, even when these supply chain crises have ended, and as COVID has continued to be a problem, and their employers have started talking about COVID in the past tense, right? They're talking about COVID in the past tense. They're putting patients in danger. And they're rolling back all sorts of workplace protections even further than they were already refusing to protect employees and, and workers before that. And then on top of it, you know, you have this kind of weird contradictory framing where they're saying, oh, and because of the ongoing crisis of COVID, like, you know, we're still going to maintain these razor thin margins where you're like on a ward and you've got maybe 50 patients and <laughs> it's just you and one other person and you're like that for six hours. You know, like really just, uh, you know, we hear from folks who staff ICUs who are like, people died last night because of the staffing ratios and I can't say anything about it. And these are the kinds of sort of compounding harms, the negative social and structural determinants of health that come downstream from the kinds of ethical and moral breaches and decision-making that has to happen when your employer is forcing these kinds of conditions on you. And we so rarely talk about the harms of what it's like to live and work through that. And I think that's also sort of part of what the focus is here, right, is that if healthcare is losing workers, then this is kind of also something that has to be addressed uh, in order to kind of keep the health system running from a structural standpoint, is it not? Exactly. I agree with you entirely. And I think there's another piece that I would add to what you just said, is that when nurses call their employers on these dangerous working conditions, like not having the PPE they need, 
with uh, COVID patients or whatever the situation is, the employer just says, well, I'm following CDC guidance. Mm-hmm. Because the CDC has adopted these crisis and contingency standards that say, well, you know, if you're having a staffing situation, uh, if you can't actually follow safe staffing, then um, it's okay to return COVID positive asymptomatic healthcare workers to work, mm-hmm. which that's a really unsafe situation for everyone mm-hmm. involved. Um, but healthcare workers have done it. And they say, well, we're, we're following CDC guidance. And that matters for this conversation that we're having about what HICPAC is and CDC are doing right now, because they are wanting to adopt that same flexible approach with the crisis and contingency standards that they took in COVID for all of infection control. So they have said they want these updates, this, this new version of the infection control guidance for healthcare to say, here's a minimal standard. And then you guys decide, employers, you decide what you do in addition to this based on uh, your own assessment of your patient population. Maybe you have a, mm. a more or less vulnerable patient population, so you do more or less infection control. Maybe you have a more or less vulnerable healthcare worker population. Maybe you have staffing considerations that go into what level of infection to do. That is that is what they are trying to change all of infection control to to be instead of you have this virus here are the precautions you need to keep everyone safe what are what do the current guidelines say that are relevant here and sort of what are the changes that are expected based on some of these leaks that got out and i guess if you don't mind if you can talk about sort of how the information came to light because as you mentioned this is sort of a notorious like black box process it's not you know publicly transparent. Um, you know, I'd also be really curious to sort of hear how and what it may have taken to actually even come by the information as to what these guidelines might become. Yes. Yeah, so what is happening, the way the process works is that HICPAC has this working group comprised of a subset of HICPAC members mm-hmm. and some CDC staff. And the working group is actually like they're working on a draft and they're making decisions about what the updates are going to include. And every meeting that HICPAC has, they meet about every quarter. So this is like the full Federal Advisory Committee. They're governed by FACA, the Federal Advisory Committee Act. HICPAC, here's an update every time they meet from the working group Mm. that's actually doing the work. So we don't have any access to what the working group is doing. We actually submitted both a request under FACA, under the Federal Advisory Committees Act, and an official request under FOIA for more information about what the working group is working on. And we were refused both times. They replied, they they refused our FACA request entirely and our FOIA came back um, completely redacted. So we don't have (sighs) detailed information about the working group is doing, but we do have the presentations that the work group has made to HICPAC. And that that is where we're actually getting this information. So this is this has been announced at a public meeting. This is a presentation that was made at a public meeting about where they're planning on going. So can you walk through sort of where they're planning on going based on the product of the working group? Because again, the sort of deliberations, as you're saying, this is not something that is accessible, but they have, you know, this proposal that's going to be voted on on the 22nd. Right. And no one has no one outside of the CDC has seen the full proposal, which is Mm. like a huge part of the issue here. Right. That like this guidance will impact so many people and they are keeping the draft behind closed doors. Mm. Um, But from what we know, 
um, the June meeting is that there's really three major issues that we have with the content, um, concerns that we have about the content, about where they're headed. One is that it's become clear that, like I said earlier, they're going to update the scientific paradigm on infectious disease transmission by name only, but they're not going to actually follow through on recognizing the vast body of research we have on aerosol transmission. So specifically, what do you mean about that? Can you can you get into some detail there? Like, do you mean that they're going to just sort of add COVID to a list of respiratory diseases or that it's sort of like uh, a specific shift in the way aerosol transmission is discussed in general? So right now we have airborne droplet contact. Those are the three main ways that infectious diseases transmit. That's what the CDC has said. That's what we all learn in school, right? Everyone knows these words now. Airborne droplet contact. Those are the categories of transmission. They are replacing that, which is which is a good thing. I want to be clear. They're replacing that with two categories, by air and by touch. Mm. And that's okay. a good thing because this dichotomy between droplet and airborne, this idea that some respiratory and other pathogens that spread through uh, respiratory aerosols or any other kind of aerosols um, only transmit three feet versus farther than six feet. That's that's a whole false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Have you all talked about and looked at that? Yes, that piece of this. Okay, yeah, we've okay. talked we've talked extensively about that. I was just thinking to myself when you mentioned, okay, they're going to shift it to two by air and by touch. I was like, wow, if that had happened prior to COVID, we would have saved hours and hours of discussion over you know, two and a half years of basically saying, no, 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 droplet means in the air too. Droplets in the air and the three to six foot. Oh gosh. I mean, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because as you're saying, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but the way that it's being done is not good. Yeah. So let's keep going. So on first glance, great. This is, this is progress, but let's keep going. So they, what became clear in June is that in the by air category, they're now going to propose three subcategories. Mm. And this is where they're making recommendations about like precautions. Is it mild, milder, and mildest? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to. I had to. Please continue. So, um, so they are going to say there's routine air precautions, novel air precautions, and extended air precautions. Mm. Okay. So I don't like this already (laughs) for routine air precautions. They say healthcare workers should have a medical or surgical face mask, which is an issue, a huge issue unto itself that the CDC is going to say there are pathogens spread through the air and healthcare workers should be protected with a face mask, a surgical mask or a medical mask. Those devices are not respiratory protection. In no circumstances do does a surgical mask or a medical mask or a cloth mask protect you from hazardous aerosols. That's not what they're designed to do. They're designed to be protection against splashes and sprays. They're designed to prevent your um, emissions from contaminating a surgical field, a sterile field. But really, if you have something that's transmitted through the air, you have to have a respirator. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really worrying. That's yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think um, oftentimes just a just a note for listeners, oftentimes, you know, we use masks on the show because it's like a broad, you know, kind of colloquial reference to 
like masking in a high quality respirator, right? Masking is a kind of cultural practice. But you have to remember these are very specific guidelines and they're going to be used by hospital administrators to their advantage, which is going to mean, you know, I'm sure potentially supplying only, you know, um, regular blue disposable procedure masks or something like that because they're much cheaper than respirators. You don't have to do the fit testing. This is this is really, in effect, a kind of privatization of, of COVID protection for healthcare workers just in a simple like language omission. It's very, very insidious. And they're doing this based on an evidence review that CDC staff conducted for the work group that concluded that there was no difference between N95 respirators and surgical masks for protecting healthcare workers from respiratory viruses. This mm-hmm. evidence review is is trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's trash. Um, they cherry-picked data from the studies they did include. Mm-hmm. They left out other studies that they should have included but didn't, and no one knows why, and uh, people have asked them, and well, they've said, we can't tell you. We know why. <laughs> right. We all know yes. why, but yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, they also, they only looked at randomized control trials, which is of not what you use when you're when you're looking at worker protections. That's Randomized mm-hmm. control trials are held up as like the gold standard when you're doing like clinical evaluations of treatments, but it's not what you use when you look at workers. It's really not an ethical way to look at workplace protections when you think that something might be protective. You can't then have an arm of, mm-hmm. of workers that are not protected intentionally. Um, there's a whole body of, of work, decades, literally decades, longer than I've been alive, longer than you've been alive, of research on respiratory protection and how it protects workers from aerosolized hazards in a variety of industries, in a variety of settings. And they didn't look at any of that. Mm-hmm. Of course so. Not. That is how they're, you know, they're getting to this. Like they're doing bad science in large part. Only where they want. Yeah. Exactly. Um, In large part because they're leaving out all of these experts, these groups of experts um, that should be part of the process industrial hygienists, occupational physicians and nurses, aerosol scientists, respiratory protection scientists. They're leaving all of them out of this whole process and they're just doing it themselves. They being the infection control clinicians and hospital industry, healthcare industry representatives. Now, so that was just sort of the routine air precautions. Mm -hmm. Now we have the novel air precautions. So I'm assuming in some capacity that, you know, the idea being, okay, you can just say masks for this because if something like COVID comes back, ugh, uh, then you have the novel one that can kick in, which obviously plays into the idea that the pandemic is over when it absolutely isn't. Is that sort of where they're going with this? That this is like, under normal times, employers have to spend X amount of money and we can pretend that COVID doesn't exist and then it's your problem to pay for those respirators. Once the com- you know Once a new virus comes through, then they'll pay. Is that kind of where they're going in this framework? I'm impressed. Uh, yes, that was very astute. So for novel air precautions, th- these are the example pathogens they list are MERS, SARS-CoV-1, and pandemic phase respiratory viruses, such as influenza and SARS-CoV-2. Pandemic phase. Yeah. So so let's, let's keep going because yeah. there's more to unpack there. So for novel air precautions, they say N95 respirator, but no airborne infection isolation room. 
So they are saying newly, and this is a new, this is a change from current practice. If you look at CDC guidance on MERS, SARS-1, SARS-2, COVID, even H1N1, they said airborne infection isolation room, like initially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's all over that 200 page document. This is that's a significant Mm -hmm. departure from the current standards. Right. So this is a huge step back in terms of protections for everyone. And this is like I want to emphasize this. This is not airborne infection isolation rooms are for protecting everyone. They keep any infectious virus that a patient emits in that room and then it gets filtered through a HEPA filter or exhausted outside. So Mm -hmm. it protects everyone who's not in that room. And then, of course, when you have healthcare workers entering that room, they need PPE. Um, And so they're saying an N95 respirator for for those categories. But so this is this is the other thing to unpack here is right that you honed in on is pandemic phase respiratory viruses such as influenza and SARS-CoV-2. When you look at the example pathogens for the routine air precautions, it says seasonal coronavirus, seasonal influenza. Oh, gosh. So we now have this new distinction between seasonal and pandemic phase for the same pathogen having different levels of protections. So the CDC is saying, like, there's some magical thing that happens with this pathogen when we call it something different. Like, not to put too, too fine a point on it, but that's no. essentially what they're doing here, right? Yeah. And that, it just doesn't it's scientifically practically doesn't make any sense to have different precautions for the same pathogen. Um, So we can see where they're headed here. It only makes sense from, yeah, it only makes sense from the perspective that, you know, COVID um, morbidity and mortality is being translated into a quote unquote expected impairment for workplace injury purposes, essentially. And at the same time as also we've seen, I mean, you're in the state of California, I'm sure you're familiar with the decision that just happened in this California State Supreme Court, where you have essentially um, the state Supreme Court saying, actually, employers really don't have duty of care in terms of protecting their workers from catching COVID at work because COVID is everywhere. You know, it's it's this kind of um, terrifying, almost mirror of what we really saw early on in the pandemic with things like nursing home liabilities, where you saw lawmakers hustling to pass liability protections for nursing homeowners. And then at the same time, they were also shifting the triage standards and shifting the transfer standards and saying, you know, you can discharge patients that are still positive with COVID back to the nursing home and the nursing homes protected from liability. You know, it is a complete um, kind of mirror of that same almost nonsense framing in terms of like the infection. You know, oh, is it quote unquote endemic COVID or is it a novel variant that's so infectious that it justifies going back that never seems to come across the horizon, but is always pointed to as the reason why what they're doing is not awful, even when it absolutely is. Yes, I agree with you. Um, So, you know, these these changes are concerning. And just to complete the description here for extended air precautions, Mm -hmm. this is for pathogens that are treated as airborne right now. So tuberculosis, measles, varicella are the example pathogens that they give. Um, and they are saying still an N95 respirator in airborne infection isolation room. So there's not much changing on that front. And essentially, you know, these categories track onto the existing droplet in airborne. So that's why I'm saying they're updating the language, mm-hmm. their terminology without actually making any changes. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's it's very worrying. It's very worrying to see the fact that what should be a change that reflects the severity of COVID and its widespread and ongoing impact is actually part of the process of kind of sociologically producing the end of the pandemic, even though it continues on, right? You know, whether that's the endemicity frame that we've seen, you know, my my co-host Abby, who's an epidemiologist, Abby Carter, she's done a, a lot of work just sort of looking at the ways that the framework of endemicity has been imposed during the pandemic, not as a declaration of fact, a reflection of the sort of actual spread of COVID going on, but it's a uh, ideological commitment <laughs> towards sort of moving towards a different phase of the pandemic. And what these guidelines should reflect is that, you know, COVID should be added to the isolation room um, guidance, right? But what we're seeing mm-hmm. is the kind of mild COVID, COVID is the flu, COVID is no big deal, actually being reinforced and reinscribed as kind of natural reality through these very guidelines framed as like making it accessible and simplifying it and making the quote unquote infection Bible, you know, as you you said, people call it like (laughs) to make it simpler and easier to use, right? Because we all have to use it more often now, which whatever. But like, you know, this is kind of the the difficult and (laughs) frankly, kind of insidious way that we've seen people say like, oh, we've got to trust the science. We have to rely on the data. As you said, like this was constructed using cherry picked evidence, omitting things. And this is going to shape the understanding of COVID moving forward if it's allowed to proceed and be, you know, adopted as is. Right. Well, and it's not just COVID that we need to be concerned about with these guidance updates. It's literally everything. Absolutely. Every infectious disease is going to be governed by this new, um, these updates. And this, I mean, the the way that they're treating the science, I agree with you entirely with what you just said. On top of this, um, like the reframing that we talked about earlier to be more flexible, to have kind of minimal standards and then leave it up to employers to decide what they do is going to result like it did during the COVID pandemic in a race to the bottom for everything. Mm-hmm. So any patient, any visitor, any healthcare worker, after these guidelines are are in effect, uh, when you go to a healthcare facility, you're going to be at higher risk for tuberculosis. You're going to be at higher risk for getting MRSA or influenza or COVID or measles or, you know, any of those kinds of diseases that people end up in the hospital with or for. Mm-hmm. And that's that we don't want that to happen. <laughs> that's why we're here. Right. Absolutely. We're, we're fighting back. Now, one of the other settings that's specifically being addressed in this update um, that also is, is really worrying is is nursing homes, too. Um, you know, we've, we've sort of mentioned hospitals by name a lot, but I want to talk specifically about the enhanced barrier precautions that have been <laughs> proposed for nursing homes and how they've been uh, proposed, you know, like what the recommendations um, would be changed to to deal with certain healthcare acquired infections like candida infections or the kinds of uh what is it like MRSA staff whatever you know the kinds of things where everyone's like oh you know you got to be really worried about all of the healthcare errors and the individual hygienic mistakes being made by individual people that are causing all these infections couldn't possibly be anything about the workplace policies or the infection controls it's 
definitely, you know, individual behavior. We sort of have that framework, right? And what they're doing also in these recommendations is is uh, making it easier for some of these really difficult to treat infections and different, you know, sort of things that you can pick up in congregate settings, whether that's a hospital, a prison, but especially a nursing home that can be really, really deadly quite quickly and, and spread quite quickly. They're also really weakening or it seems like they might weaken those protections as well as part of this update. Yeah. So I'll just preface this by saying most of my experience and expertise is around hospitals and and clinics and home health. Um, But certainly I can talk about what the CDC has proposed here around nursing homes and and some of the implications. Um, I think there's also always a concern that they'll introduce this into nursing homes and then expand it to other facilities as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But what what, uh, HICPAC has proposed, at least at the June 2023 meeting, is that for skilled nursing facilities, enhanced barrier precautions will be implemented, which is where gown and glove use is only during, quote, high contact patient care activities. It's not defined in this Mm. document that they shared, Um, but basically they're saying you can either uh, do it as a pathogen-based method. So if you have a resident with a particular uh, infection or colonization with a particular organism, or if you have residents with wounds or indwelling medical devices um, who are at particularly high risk of getting an infection, then you implement enhanced barrier precautions. And that they're not going to require cleaning or disinfecting of equipment between residents. Residents won't be like isolated. They won't be confined to their rooms. They'll be allowed to mix with other patients, to eat in the dining hall, go to activities. Um, and the example pathogens they give for enhanced barrier precautions include CRE and Candida auris. And I just want to point out Candida auris, the rates of Candida auris, uh, Candida is a a fungal pathogen that's uh, resistant to a lot of the drugs that are used to treat it, and it's exploded over the last few years in the United States. And there was a study that came out recently that found that the mortality rate of patients with Candida auris was about one-third. These are Mm. patients who are hospitalized. And so, you know, I think that kind of underlines that particular statistic underlines the risk of a nursing home patient becoming colonized or infected with candida auris and that like that, that that's not okay right to put them at higher risk of that kind of infection is is really concerning for them and for others in the facility absolutely um, and then the, the guidance, just one more point, the guidance then says you would use contact precautions, which is when you use a gown or glove, gowns and gloves for any activity interacting with that patient um, or entering their room at all. If for specific pathogens that are time limited, like norovirus, C. diff, scabies, where it's a time limited infection and during outbreaks. So basically what this proposal says is that we should wait to put in place precautions that we know work to prevent transmission of infectious diseases until there's an outbreak in in nursing homes. For listeners that might not be aware why I'm taking such a deep sigh, can you talk about why these decisions that we're talking about are going to make workplaces so much more dangerous, make care so much more dangerous, and who this benefits. I know these are, you know, obvious points, 
we have that shared context. But you never know when someone's first episode of a podcast is, right? So let's say maybe we have a person who's brand new to the show and they might not even realize that COVID's still a problem. I mean, let's be real. Like, based on what your media consumption is, you might think COVID is over, right? Like, that is uh, a person, that's a guy that exists. We don't have to make him up, right? So for folks that, you know, maybe don't kind of see what this does to let's say in particular hospitals, which is, um, as you said, your particular area of expertise, but a particularly great place to pick up an infection from another patient, from another worker. What do these proposed changes do to the working environment? It's a great question. So if you think about the things that I've talked about, they're all oriented towards less protection. They're rolling back to a surgical mask rather than an N95. They're not using uh, an airborne infection isolation room. This whole idea of the flexible approach. The only person that that benefits is the employer because they save money. They don't Mm -hmm. have to pay for N95s. They don't have to pay for, say, PAPRs and elastomerics, which are types of respirators that are even more protective than an N95. Um, That really should be used more often. Um, They don't have to pay for ventilation. They don't have to pay to when there's a surge in COVID patients or a surge in patients with an unknown uh, respiratory infection. They don't have to pay to uh, convert rooms into negative pressure rooms to protect folks. And what that means is that everyone who's present in that environment is going to be at higher risk. It's the we've talked about. I feel like I've talked about the Swiss cheese model of risk reduction so many times through the pandemic. I'm sure you all have talked about it too. But for those who are not familiar, it always bears repeating. Always bears repeating. It's a really important and simple model to think about this. There's a guy named James Reason who came up with this model in, I believe, the 80s, um, that when you're working in a complex system, when there's a lot of factors at play and you want to prevent harm from happening, the more measures you have in place, the less likely that harm is uh, to happen. And if you envision each measure that you could put in place, so like we're talking about COVID, each protective measure, ventilation, uh, respirator, environmental cleaning, paid sick leave, Mm -hmm. just to name a few examples. If you think about each of those measures as a slice of Swiss cheese, it's got holes in it. Not one of those is going to be perfect. You can't just give people respirators and say, great, we're done. That's not how it works, right? Um, But the more measures you have in place, the more likely it is that you prevent the harm from happening. And so that's the whole orientation to the preventing COVID. Like that's what we've been calling for, what nurses have been calling for since the beginning of the pandemic. And That is the opposite of what the CDC is working towards. Right. And that's presumably the point of infection control guidelines for healthcare settings. One would think. Yes. Right. You know, that (laughs) like and that's that's the thing that can be really frustrating. Right. Is that, as you mentioned um, much earlier, you know, when we were talking about, you know, things that you and I have heard from uh, folks who are working in healthcare settings that oftentimes this is justified by pointing to it and saying, well, CDC says that we don't have to protect you. CDC says that it's okay to abandon you. CDC says that it's not our problem. If you want to protect yourself from COVID, it's your problem. You know, and 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 really sort of what is going on here is that this is a a, a major challenge and um, hurdle that is being 
introduced intentionally into healthcare workplaces. And that is coming at the same time as the messaging and the language about why we need to make these changes and why we need to do these things that are, again, going to make people sick, kill people, make work worse, harder, more dangerous, and more emotionally draining for all of the healthcare workers, make things much more dangerous for patients. No one comes out better from this, as you mentioned, other than the employers themselves. And all of this, right, is being justified by the fact that, oh, well, we have to do these things, otherwise the healthcare system will collapse. Mm -hmm. It's so... You know, nurses are being thrown into the grinder. Patients are being thrown into the grinder. Transport workers are being thrown into the grinder. Just the folks working in the cafeteria or, you know, checking, you know, insurance, anyone in the vicinity of the hospital, the places these people go in their private lives when they leave work, their their families, their neighbors, their people they're next to on the subway, on the bus, whatever. This has, you know, an impact and a reverberation beyond these individual moments of transmission, right, between one person and another in one healthcare setting. It doesn't stay in the healthcare setting. And the way that these guidelines kind of pretend that healthcare settings are not a part of the community is very strange to me, and I'm sure is really frustrating to you as well. It is. And, you know, I think on the flip side, we see that argument thrown at healthcare workers as a reason to not protect them, mm-hmm. right? Like we see employers say, I mean, they said for years now that healthcare workers are more likely to get infected in the community than in the workplace. And that's that's not true. I, they Anywhere that you've seen an employer put forward data to supposedly support those points, it's been poorly gathered they haven't tested asymptomatic healthcare workers who were exposed. Or the I think the example that is clearest on this point is the Cleveland Clinic. Mm-hmm. And they put out an article that was claiming that their healthcare workers were more likely to get infected in the community than at, in the workplace. And then it came out a few months later that during the period of their study, they had been giving their healthcare workers counterfeit N95s that didn't protect them. Oh, my God. Right. So that, you know, that's. That's that's a clear example, right, of how employers have done this. And it's I, there's no recognition of the need to protect healthcare workers as, as you said, as just what employers are obligated to do in this country based upon a decades-long fight to win the Occupational Safety and Health Act uh, to establish workers' right to a safe workplace in mm-hmm. this country. People People fought and died for that over many, many years. And employers are are ignoring that obligation, um, except where, of course, workers and especially unions organize to force them to recognize that right and, and take measures to protect workers. But there's also this lack of awareness and not even a lack of awareness, it's a lack of recognition on the part of employers. And I would say the CDC, too, about exactly what you said about how workers are not just workers, they're people, and they exist in these complex webs of social connection, and that it really matters how we protect workers mm-hmm. for what happens to public health writ large. And I think the COVID pandemic made that super clear to a lot of people. And it is, it's not just disappointing, it's, I don't know what word is good here. Radical Infuriating. Uh, it's infuriating that the yeah. CDC is not recognizing this, right? Yeah. I mean, it is. It has been radicalizing for a lot of people, you're right. But yeah. for the CDC to not recognize this fact after what we all just have lived through and continue to live through, uh, 
is it's a travesty. It's yeah. it, it shouldn't be happening. And it tracks with with um you know the, all the previous guideline changes that we've seen. All this you know all the statements you mm-hmm. know. And we've been talking a lot about, for lack of a better word, like individually mediated workplace protections. But another thing that's addressed here and done so poorly um, and that will be sort of affected by these changes if they go into place and are adopted is the kind of structural workplace protections as well. Um, This includes some sort of shifts in the discussion of not just like individually ventilated rooms um, for isolating patients, but just sort of the ventilation systems and HVAC in general, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's totally unclear based on what has been made public, how or if the updates will address kind of the multiple measures approach to infection control. So things like ventilation, things like screening and isolation, things like safe staffing, right? These structural pieces that you're talking about. I would say on top of that, that there was another meeting that for a a group that I sit on, I can give you the specifics if you want, but the short why it's important is that Dr. Mike Bell, who is a staff within CDC that staffs HICPAC, he works on and for HICPAC, he told us in that meeting that they are not planning on incorporating ventilation or other respiratory protective devices like poppers and elastomerics in these guidance updates. And, you know, that that could change. The, the guidance is still ongoing the develop mm-hmm. the process developed the guidance is still ongoing right we are pushing really hard mm-hmm. that could change hopefully it will change but it might not change and for that to be you know an explicit message and that happened in March of 2023 that I heard that from Dr. Bell um for that to be an explicit decision that had been made in in March at least that they weren't going to talk about ventilation and super concerning yeah yeah absolutely I mean it's um I'd love if you want to get into more detail about that ventilation piece. One of the kind of frustrating things that often folks who are advocating for layered protections for the Swiss cheese model, who have been for so long, you know, um, oftentimes whatever it is that's being held up is treated as a silver bullet. And, you know, there there's sometimes like is, um, you know, a kind of debate just sort of between the promise of ventilation, right? Like the the many ways that ventilation um, and HVAC upgrades can um, potentially mitigate COVID and the way that's talked about and then the realization and the actuality of how that exists in the world, right? Where, for example, you'll see often um, the Biden administration kind of tout and champion um, the fact that HVAC upgrades have been made in some public schools in some places in some parts of the United States, right? And that is kind of spoken about in a very selective way that runs cover for, you know, the fact that not all children have a safe place to learn right now. In fact, most of them don't, you know, (laughs) explicitly. And COVID is just one of many reasons why it's unsafe and ventilation could help with a lot of them, right? But one thing that's really, I think, particularly interesting is, you know, to not even really kind of go there here too, right? And it shows you how important the the differences between the idea of ventilation as it exists as a kind of silver bullet, right? Which is really just the idea that ventilation upgrades can stand in from, 
for other layered protections. Um, and that's obviously dangerous for all of the reasons we've been discussing for like the last hour. But, you know, the the sort of exclusion of ventilation here, for example, is really important because employers would be beholden to actually making those changes were they to be included, correct? And that exclusion of them, I think, shows us the the kind of reality of the public um, kind of lip service that's paid to ventilation as a mitigation for COVID versus how ventilation has actually been implemented for COVID in in real world environments. Mm -hmm. I think that's spot on. Um, I mean, for those who are maybe of your listeners who are maybe not as familiar with like what we're talking about with like why ventilation matters, would be helpful to walk through that briefly. Yeah, definitely. So if you think about uh, how COVID is transmitted, and this is something that actually applies not just to COVID, but to a lot of other diseases, including influenza and RSV, just for the record. But I'll talk about COVID specifically since that's kind of a lot of the focus of our conversation. Um, You have a person, they're infected, maybe they know it, maybe they don't, right? Because Mm -hmm. actually for all three of these diseases, COVID, influenza, and RSV, there's a lot of transmission that happens before people develop symptoms. If you think about every breath that they take, every word that they speak, every sneeze, cough, laugh, singing, all Mm -hmm. of that, anytime they use their respiratory tract to do anything, there are infectious viral particles that are emitted. And they're emitted in respiratory secretions. They're emitted in like little tiny bits of mucus water proteins. It's all kind of mixed together. And those, we call them particles or aerosols, particles suspended in the air. Those aerosols uh, are in a wide range of sizes, almost exclusively microscopic, right? You can't Mm -hmm. really see it um, when you're just talking to someone in a room. Um, But they can stay suspended in the air and travel long distances. And where ventilation becomes important is that if you have someone who's in a room and there's no ventilation at all, very quickly, that room will become filled. Those those infectious particles will become very concentrated if you have someone who's infected in that room. And where ventilation can be helpful is decreasing that concentration. So if you think about someone else being in that room and there's ventilation that's pulling the air out that has infectious particles in it and bringing in filtered air that's cleaner or outside air that doesn't have infectious particles in it, you're going to keep that Uh, concentration at a lower level, which means that the other person who's not infected yet has a lower chance of breathing in enough infectious particles to become infected. And so you can see the ways that ventilation by itself is not going to fix the problem, Mm -hmm. right? That other person is probably going to breathe some infectious virus in, especially if they're close by the person who's infectious, Mm -hmm. because there's, you know, it's a gradient, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not guaranteed that just because you're six or 12 or 20 feet away that you're not going to get infected. And so that's where we need to have these other measures like screening patients who come into a facility, like wearing masks or better yet, wearing an N95, Um, like having people be able to stay home when they're feeling sick or be able to stay home when they know they've been exposed Um, and all of the other measures that we could be talking about. Does that that help? Absolutely. No, I, I beautiful laying that out. Really appreciate that. Um, and, and I think it, it speaks to also, again, these guidelines should reflect the fact that healthcare facilities are part of 
the regular world that we all live in, right? So if there's no paid sick leave for restaurant workers and they have to go <laughs> to work sick with COVID, that's also, you know, like if if they were, if the CDC was really committed to, you know, keeping America like economically productive and safe from COVID, you know, adequately as they say that they are, you know, what you would need to do to to like actually reduce the burden, so to speak, on the, the healthcare workforce or the healthcare system of COVID is to like give everyone the ability to stay home when they are sick and to make sure they have healthcare, right? Like the, the kind of um, guidelines themselves they, in a way, they kind of individuate um, infections and and put them kind of in this very specific context of like one worker, one healthcare facility. And so obviously even, you know, the guidelines, if they were best, right, would still be happening in a world where most people don't have sick leave. But you would think that you know, it would be advantageous in some capacity towards their stated goals to have robust layered protections in place in healthcare settings. And I think it's evidence that their commitment to their stated goals is insincere when you look at what some of these guideline changes that are potentially going to be adopted at next week's meeting are. Can you talk about what the demands are? What are the demands that NNU has put forward specifically regarding these changes? Yeah, so specifically, we want to see the process opened up and made transparent. We mm-hmm. want the draft to be made public. We want there to be clear input from healthcare workers and unions, as well as other experts who have expertise germane to these updates. The aerosol scientists, respiratory protection experts, ventilation experts, occupational health, industrial hygiene, right? That whole range of people Mm -hmm. need to actually be part of developing the draft, not just... um, So when we say this to the CDC, the CDC says back, well, there will be a federal register posting down the line. We can make public comment then. Okay. But by then, all of the decisions have been made. We really need the process to be open and transparent and engaged with the public now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the other things that we are asking for are for them to not, not adopt the, the quote, flexible or the crisis standards approach. We need clear and explicit guidance for what employers need to be doing to healthcare workers and patients in all of these different situations. We need them to adopt the multiple measures approach and maintain the precautionary principles. So that means clearly talking about ventilation, engineering controls, PPE, staffing, patient screening and isolation, exposure notification, vaccines, the whole shebang needs to still be part of this. It's part. It's actually part of the 2007 guidance. It needs to not be cut out, right? Mm-hmm. That whole multiple measures approach. And then the third thing that we're asking them, or I guess the fourth thing that we're asking them for is to make strong recommendations, particularly on respiratory protection, where that's needed to protect healthcare workers and patients. They need to fully recognize the science on aerosol transmission and really keep strong protections, uh, strong recommendations on respiratory protection. So in a nutshell, those are the things that we're asking for right now. Thank you for running through it. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure, you know, folks uh, listening to this right now are probably now like wondering, you know, as we mentioned at the top, like we have an ask of people today. Can we talk through if people want to get involved in the work that NNU is doing around this specifically or just, you know, help out or participate in the organizing, whether that's sort of signing on to something or um, testimony, research help, sort of, can you uh, talk about 
you know, any and all ways that folks might be able to help out towards trying to get those four points across to the CDC and to HICPAC? Yeah. So a super easy thing that every single listener can do is to go to nnu.org slash CDC, nnu.org slash CDC, and sign our petition. It mm-hmm. makes those four points that I talked about that were the asks that we're making of the CDC. It's really simple. Um, we really want people to sign that in the next couple of days ahead of the meeting that's happening next Tuesday. But, you know, if you're busy and you're listening to the podcast after August 22nd, go ahead and sign it. Um, we'll we'll still include you in our efforts. So that would be the, the biggest piece that folks can do. All right, folks. Before the 22nd, today's the 17th, the day this episode comes out. So you should have plenty of time to take like five seconds and at least do that over the weekend. Hopefully, please, if you can. Um, If folks want to uh, sign on like and they're in the EU or Canada, that I'm assuming is... Is that helpful or is that not for international listeners? No, please okay. go ahead. We are recognize that the guidance that the HICPAC and CDC put out has international implications. Mm-hmm. There are other agencies, there are employers, there are associations internationally that look to the CDC. So yes, please join us wherever you are in the world. And if folks want to get involved beyond that, how can people plug in and help? Um, So the other thing that people can do if they're interested is sign up to comment at the meeting that's happening on Tuesday, August 22nd. It's scheduled from noon to 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. It's virtual. It's on Zoom. There is a link in the episode description that will take you to a Google form Fill that out, and then I will make sure that you get the link to register for the meeting as well as talking points. And that would be a huge help. We want to make sure that there's a, a group, a strong group of people at that meeting sharing these points that we talked about. The need to for more transparency, the need to protect patients and healthcare workers by issuing strong guidance. Um, we want to make sure that there's a lot of folks speaking at that meeting. Um, so if you're free and available on August 22nd from noon to 2:30 p.m. Eastern time, uh, there's a link in the episode description mm-hmm. for more information. Artie and I are going to be there. We cleared our calendar for Tuesday. So we'll actually Amazing. Put, <laughs> and we'll put links to both that and where you can sign on in the episode description. Sometimes it's episode notes. If you can't find it, email us, DM us, bother me, whatever. We'll make sure that you can get um, plugged into this however you need. Now, there's another thing that we're going to link to in the episode description, which is really helpful if people want to just sort of do some more digging, read up on this, maybe get prepared for Tuesday. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the, the letter that was addressed to Mandy Cohen and sent uh, in late July, which laid out uh, a lot of the things that we've been talking about today? Yeah, so a group of experts got together and wrote this letter. It was signed by nearly 900 people with expertise in public health, occupational health, uh, ventilation, respiratory protection, uh, aerosol science, healthcare, infection control, a whole range of experts who should be a part of this process but are not being included by the CDC. And that letter laid out concerns about the content of the draft proposals, as well as concerns about HICPAC's lack of transparency in how they're making these updates. And has Dr. Cohen responded yet? Or has she publicly uh, made comment on these guidelines that are maybe going to be updated? No, we got a very brief thank you for the email. And then there's been nothing in the last several weeks. 
So, you know, listeners who are DC Health Beat reporters, you heard that. You've got something to ask Mandy right now. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jane. Just had to just had to do that. Um, no, and this this letter is really detailed. I think the sign-on section I, I particularly love. It's a beautiful touch, you know, a 60-page letter almost. It's 900 people. It's an airtight sort of case. It makes these new guidelines look like a joke. You know, it's a really important work if you're looking for a sort of standard for also kind of like how to produce the kind of knowledge production and uh, work that needs to go into like resisting changes to guidelines and policy, you know, whether it's in the framework of implementation or policy design, things like that. This is like a master class in, in sort of putting together a background document and also showing just the immense amount of solidarity behind this issue and also the support that is sort of behind these critiques of the CDC. And the implications of these guidelines are very serious. I think particularly what worries me um, the most is these nursing home guidelines. And as you said, you know, there is, it's not inconceivable that things that sort of are stood up now in nursing homes or, you know, undone in terms of protections now and in sort of these uh, rehab facilities or, or other congregate facilities like that, that that could become the new norm for um, just healthcare settings writ large. Uh, the disability scholar, uh, late disability scholar, Marta Russell, when she was theorizing her money model of disability, one of the things she said is that the nursing home industry is like the canary in the coal mine for what is going to become of American medical care systems, right? So when we look at some of the innovations, both in terms of the way that workers are extracted from, but also that patients are extracted from and abstracted from, you know, a human being with dignity into an object or a bed where the kind of occupation of a bed is more valuable than them as a person. And that's where the kind of money model of disability comes from, is looking at how, in particular, what happens to patients, the abandonment that happens in particular to patients and people in nursing homes, right, that that also goes on to structure not just the experience of other patients in other parts of the healthcare system, but that it's a major form of labor discipline. And the way that we, you know, are forcing workers to treat patients and extracting from them, you know, what we see in nursing homes is the discipline to come to future healthcare workers in other sectors of the healthcare industry, which is why, you know, Marta's work is so salient. And, you know, it's really important to also just take a moment. If you just have like five minutes, you've got four days before that meeting, just sign on to the letter. Again, that's what NNU forward slash CDC or NNU.com. NNU.org forward slash CDC. Exactly. And Jane, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know we've been going for a while. I don't want to steal more of your time. But on a final note, you know, what would actually good protections for healthcare workers look like? It, it would look like good protection. It would look like it would look like stronger protections. You know, I think the conversation that we had today about the staffing crisis the ways that healthcare workers have been disregarded and treated during the COVID pandemic by their employers and by the CDC and government agencies 
I think really to rebuild that trust, there needs to be stronger protections. There needs to be, first of all, engagement with healthcare workers to create those protections, to create those that guidance. Um, but to 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 make healthcare a safe place to work, there really needs to be more protection. There needs to be good ventilation. There needs to be uh, strong respiratory protection and personal protective equipment. There needs to be really thorough contact tracing and uh, exposure notification. There needs to be paid sick leave. That's that's generous and recognizes that importance of that measure and. You know, I think that if we can course correct the CDC on this front, it will have major implications in a positive way for healthcare workers being able to do their jobs without having to worry about infecting their patients or having to worry about infecting their other patients because they have a load where they have an assignment where one patient is infected, but the others are not, or worry about themselves being infected and taking it home to their families. Um, and I think that that will have a huge impact on retention of nurses at the bedside and will have a major impact on um, our healthcare system as a whole and our really our society as a whole. That where we can lead with um, that care for workers and that care for what they need to do their jobs, that mm-hmm. that will be transformative in many ways. Jane, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Again, my guest today is Jane Thomason. Jane is the lead industrial hygienist for National Nurses United. All those links will be in the description. And patrons, as always, we will see you Monday in the patron feed. Everyone else, we will hopefully see you Tuesday in that meeting and then in the main feed at the end of the week, like usual. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.